This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And right now, nations from all over the world are meeting in Bonn for the COP23 climate negotiations. But even though the negotiations are happening in Germany, Fiji's Prime Minister, Frank Barnimarama, is the COP president for this summit. And Fiji, like other small island states, are particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change and is already providing lessons for the world as it moves displaced communities to higher ground. Uh, Dr Celia McMichael's been researching climate-related migration in Fiji. She's lecturer in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne and it's great to have you here, Celia. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And uh, I suppose with Fiji as president for this particular summit, does it bring a unique perspective to these particular COP negotiations, you think? Yeah, I think it's really important to have a president that's from a small island developing state um, because in some ways they're at the front line of climate change um, risks and impacts. Um, pretty pretty high profile, particularly in terms of the migration and relocation um, issues. So uh, what Fiji is going to bring to the table is just highlighting those emerging risks for, say, you know, countries like Fiji, Tuvalu, Kiribati, and um, we'll highlight that we not only need to focus on um, greenhouse gas mitigation uh, and adapting to climate change risks, but also how we can account for uh, loss and damage. So what that really means is that countries like Fiji that are needing to put funding and uh, um, implement adaptive uh, initiatives need to access loss and damage funding. Um, so they'll bring that to the table as as part of a, a global theme. And, uh, I mean, some of those um, places that you mentioned, of course, including Fiji, are some of the most vulnerable for, for climate change and rising sea levels and, and changing weather patterns and so on. Mm. What sort of changes have we seen in Fiji in recent times, um, you know, in the sense of climate-induced migration and that sort of thing? Yeah, look, it's a really great question. Um, Fiji, I'll just um, start by saying Fiji is actually not that high profile compared to countries like Kiribati and Tuvalu, which we see in the media all the time as those really low-lying atolls that, you know, have an elevation of, say, one to two metres above sea level. Fiji's a mountainous um, small islands, but, of course, they have a lot of villages clustered around those low-lying areas. Um, and so some of those villages in Fiji are some of the first globally to go to the government and say, we need to relocate. Um, so... Th- some of the villages I've been working in, like um, Vunidongaloa and Narakoso, have seen the shorelines come in 10 metres, 15 metres, and wash away houses, damage infrastructure, get salination, which kind of impacts uh, their ability to produce food. Um, and f- from the perspective of the, cli- um, the Fiji government and those villages, they're attributing those changes to climate change um, and sea level rise. Of course, that's not all that's going on. You have modification um, of the coastline through seawalls, mangroves being cut down. So there are other things that might change coastal um, yeah, parameters, but climate change is, is considered one of the key risks. And, I mean, we've, we've seen Fiji really affected by tropical cyclones, uh, of mm. course, and, and we've seen, you know, efforts there to to support those communities. But is this different, this kind of mitigation and and adaptation that you're talking about? Yeah, they're kind of different risks. So with Cyclone Winston, which, uh, you know, was a few years ago, you get uh, communities affected by cyclone disaster, you know, houses and infrastructure destroyed in that, you know, um, disaster kind of scenario. Sea level rise is quite different. It's a slow onset change. Um, In some ways you can predict it. So we, you know, we, we can look at different greenhouse gas emissions trajectories and estimate that say if we if we go on business as 
usual with you know high greenhouse gas emissions we're going to be looking at anywhere between one to two meters by the end of the century of sea level rise if we urgently cut greenhouse gas emissions um, now then we might be able to curtail that sea level rise and look at say a half a meter by the end of the century so you know there's a lot of fuzziness around those estimates but it's still kind of predictable compared to a disaster which is harder so yeah they're very different risks and you've written um, an article in in pursuit melbourne university's kind of online media news platform that communicates research being done by melbourne uni academics and mm. um in that uh, i was um interested to, to read that fiji has government-run programs aimed to kind of ease the relocation of people in fiji is that mm. very common among these sorts of places that, that governments actually assist with that sort of thing um no it's not that common so um a, a, quite a few countries are starting to put in um relocation migration as part of their national adaptation plans for things they're expecting to do in the future um, so places like uh, Alaska Mozambique um, Vietnam you, you, you see the um, some relocation but Fiji is one of the first where the government is actually responding to demand from the village level and that's really important it's not so much a top-down initiative where they're saying you need to move and you need to do it now and on these terms so what's happening in say Vunidongoloa one of the villages that I've worked is the village head uh, has worked really closely with his village which is small it's like 26 households about 100 people um, and they have responded to these uh, impacts at that village level and approached their provincial government and then the national government and said, we need support to relocate. So they moved two kilometres uphill and they've had a lot of ministries, international labour organisation, other donors and NGOs involved to support that relocation. But the government says, look, we can't, you know, you need to chip in as well, you need to contribute. So in order to fund that relocation, Vunidongoloa, um, rather kind of tragically and ironically... Um, cut down their hardwood and sold it um, to a mill to produce their money to contribute to that fund um, and then moved uphill with the support. Yeah, gee, so it's not necessarily a perfect example, but at the same time, is it providing international examples for this kind of voluntary migration rather than a forced migration? Yeah, look, I think Vunidongoloa is um, considered, you know, a relatively good example in terms of the, the types of things we see with relocation in that it's community-led, um, there's a lot of consensus at the community level, there's been very good livelihood um, reconstruction up in the new site, so they've got pineapple plantations, banana plantations, copra dryers, um, trout fishing ponds, so there's a new livelihood um, available in that new site. But it's also highly disruptive. So particularly for the older people, um, they've been saying, well, you know, we're uprooted from where we belong. We really miss the sea. We've had to leave behind our, our ancestors in cemeteries. It's it's a big dislocation. Um, and there's much more access to the main roads into the kind of small regional centres. So that kind of brings with it social impacts and change. So the younger people are in and out of the towns a bit more. Um, the religion is starting to splinter a bit. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's it's not without its problems too. Mm. If you're just tuned in, we're speaking with Dr Celia McMichael, lecturer in the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne, all about the future of climate refugees, particularly um, in relation to Fiji to coincide with um, the summit in Bonn, um, the COP23 climate talks uh, underway in Bonn currently. And, and you've said that we, we need to uh, learn more about different aspects of climate migration and develop international laws and framework to support these migrants. There's been kind of some pushback by national governments to acknowledging climate refugees or 
aside from kind of, I guess, humanitarian refugees. Is that the kind of thing that we need change in international law to accept that people will be moving around owing to climate change? Um, yeah, look, this is a really contentious area. It's a, it's a great question of, of are we going to be able to get a legal framework? So you use the term climate refugees. Um, that's great in the, in the media. It gets a lot of kind of excitement because refugee is a very strong political term. But a lot of countries are saying we, we, we don't want to be framed as refugees. It's a kind of a victim identity. And so uh, places like Fiji or Kiribati will say, no, we need to talk about it more in terms of climate mobility and supporting mobility so whether that's you know access to seasonal migrate um, seasonal worker programs to Australia just supporting migration into urban areas so so that is one of the legal issues is 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 not to frame it as a, a kind of refugee paradigm mm. but there's still this question of how are we going to define a climate migrant um, because in order to have a kind of legal reparation or a legal response you need to know who is a climate migrant that is very difficult because no one is going to move just because of environmental change or rarely it always intersects with economic social gender disability age so there's so many factors that come into play and then intersect with environmental risks to shape mobility so it's not going to be that there's a category of climate refugees or climate migrants. What you're going to have is an amplification of, of migration flows and some situations where, you know, the primary driver is climate change. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to develop, you know, clear legal frameworks. And is it likely, I mean, within that difficulty, is it likely that it's going to be, you know, region by region around the world? I mean, we've seen the Caribbean islands recently hit with, with cyclones, but there's all sorts of issues there and all around the world are we are we seeing it evolve in that way or so do you mean are there differences regionally in, between in a, well with the pacific islands they're closer to australia australasia mm. new zealand would be involved there and others in in the u.s is the the big economy in near the caribbean are we are we likely to see it evolve in that way do you think yeah i think there's going to be different regional solutions like the pacific itself are trying to develop uh you know solutions within themselves so say fiji has been um, in conversation with kiribati to say well are we going to be able to provide land so that people from kiribati can relocate and they have made some um, exchanges and bought up land in Kiribati have bought up land in Fiji um, where people might be able to relocate in the future so uh, there are definitely those regional solutions and um, certainly people would look at existing uh, memorandum of understanding and agreements for migration pathways and see if they might be an option Um, but bear in mind a lot of this relocation will be internal within countries other than I mean this is why Kiribati and Tuvalu are so high high profile is because the thinking is oh my god the whole country will have to relocate but in both scenarios what it will be is an amplification of migration um, within countries Um, so you you know in that sense you don't need regional or international Mm. agreements Mm. so where's your work taking you next what's next with the studies of, of Fiji and what's happening there um, well, uh, continuing to work in Fiji. So, um, I, obviously, I don't do that work alone. I work very closely with the climate change um, unit um, in the government and UNSCAP and GIZ and a lot of great local researchers. And you really need to do it that way. It's, it needs to be um, research and findings and recommendations that that align with what the local communities want. So um, I've got a few um, projects in the pipeline, which hopefully funding gets up, to go and continue that work. Um, 
and but we're also thinking about doing some more comparative studies so say with um, the Solomon Islands uh, with Kiribati uh, possibly with the Maldives to try and just look at um, what countries can learn and what differences there are yeah and there really are big differences in how countries respond and, and what about from COP23 uh, are there hopes from small island nations that there might be a result or some some movement in this area of, of migration or a climate related um, displacement that sort of thing yeah um definitely and I think I mean it's it's amazing how the whole space has changed over the last few decades from thinking climate migration is a crisis and this is a you know something we can advocate on to drive this global push for greenhouse gas emission reduction and then saying actually it's not a crisis it's an adaptive mechanism and that's that you know that's the kind of new narrative and now we're back to saying look it's a it's a loss it's a it's a form of loss and damage let's get back to focusing on greenhouse gas emissions and it's really important that globally we don't think oh, okay so migration is an adaptive solution we can ask countries to do that and kind of bumble along on our greenhouse gas emission reduction efforts the countries are saying now don't assume that's our future and Kiribati who have it's been saying migration with dignity for a while and now saying, actually, no, we're going to fortify, we're going to stay, we, wa- we want the world to focus on greenhouse gas emissions reductions and don't assume that we are willing to leave. Mm. So things are changing quite rapidly. Mm. And, of course, Australia is involved in those, I guess, kind of high-level negotiations coming out of the, the Paris Agreement in, in 2015. Do we need to be kind of more involved in, in our region, in the Pacific, with these kind of mitigation and, and, and alleviation to some of the consequences of, of climate change that are being felt by communities there? Yeah, look, I mean, there is quite a lot of effort that's going on. Um, we're Australia supporting adaptation initiatives uh, in the Pacific, um, and that's really valuable and needs to continue. I mean, just on the kind of moral injustice of it alone, it's, it's uh, I mean, it's arguably, but to my mind, not arguably, the big emitting countries have a responsibility to support adaptation initiatives, and Australia um, is, is doing some of that for sure in the Pacific as our regional neighbour. Mm. Um, so that needs to continue, yeah. Thank you so much for coming in to Triple R and Dr Celia McMichaels with the University of Melbourne. She's a lecturer in the School of Geography there and has been uh, looking very closely studying there with some research partners in Fiji and uh, we'll see what comes out of COP23 as well with uh, Frank Barney-Marama at the helm this time round. Thanks so much. Thanks. And Titus O'Reilly's in the house. He's a sports satirist and his new book is A Thoroughly Unhelpful History of Australian Sport. It's funny and insightful and it's really great to have you back at Triple R, Titus. Welcome. I feel very comfortable being back in this seat. Yeah. (laughs) Having, uh, like many people, starting off at Triple R, which is why it's such an important station really, isn't it? So you look around Melbourne and half half the people doing things have had their start here. Yeah, and half the people writing coherently and with wit about sport (laughs) did as well. And this book is really uh, good fun and it's uh, I really enjoyed reading it. And I, I, I mean, look, we could go to so many things in it but one that really stood out to me Titus was when you you're writing about how Australians you know love sailing with the with the sort of city to Hobart and we and we love you know soccer when it's the World Cup and we love athletics when it's the Olympics and then all the rest of the time we don't even pay any attention whatsoever to those particular sports. No it's very sports very much in Australia like it's our little ego self-esteem boost whenever things are on and we're going well at it we're very happy and then we sort of you know our self-esteem either crashes or or is boosted every four years at the olympics basically (laughs) and uh, that's sort of 
you know, it's a weird thing. It goes right back to Australia, you know, when it was first uh, had the uh, British show up, uh, you know, and assuming the place was empty despite the uh, oldest culture in the history of the world being here, they uh, decided to turn everything into England and uh, sport was the big thing they did. And it was the first thing that the colonies did that internationally they could compete really with uh, Britain, you know, which was this powerful empire, and we started beating them at the cricket relatively early on, and we've since found out it's not very hard to beat England at the cricket, but <laughs> it was this real sense of identity that it was the first thing and made people feel really like this was a, a new country, not just an extension of Britain, and that sort of stuck with us all these years, and scientists and artists and have gone on to great uh, lengths to impress us but uh, people still care more about Stephen Bradbury almost not falling over at the Winter <laughs> Olympics as a highlight despite the fact we've invented Wi-Fi and penicillin and all sorts of amazing things yeah I mean there's I follow I football I follow tennis when the Australian opens on and that's kind of pretty much it I never really got much into cricket but um this book's really fun to read was it fun to write or are there some sports where even for you you kind of go oh, all right now I've got to write the golf section or <laughs> <laughs> no, well not so, sometimes writing like I'm not a big golf fan because they say golf is a, a good walk spoiled but I don't really like walking <laughs> either so yeah, I'm far away from golf but no even they were fun to you know poke fun at I, I sort of wanted to write something that was a history of Australian sport that was also funny because otherwise it's just very dry and a lot of sports books histories are uh, I read a lot to write this book some of them are really good if you're into sport but they're very much you know then this guy got a mark and kicked a goal and then this you know century got scored this is more about the money the power racism sexism the controversies and more how it's shaped our culture and our society and how we got to us being mad about sport and how we got it to be linked in with taxpayer dollars and billions of dollars and propping up all sorts of industries. Mm. Yeah, we've just had the spring racing carnival and I suppose we could talk about that. But also, I mean, I, I love, there's a couple of lines in there, but one is that we are more forgiving of things like drug scandals than we are of losing. That's and right. That, and there's just so much truth in, in that laugh. Well, well, the thing about uh, the recent Essendon saga that was a saga in the AFL, uh, you know, James Hurd was banned for a year for his involvement in that and depending on your view of how innocent or guilty he was, it was a, a mismanagement that allowed players to be injected with unknown substances or you could, some argue, he was knowingly doing it. Uh, but he didn't get sacked for that. He got suspended for a, a, a year. Now, any other workplace... If your staff were being injected by something and you didn't know what it was, you wouldn't hang around. It was only when Essendon then started losing that he actually got the sack. And so right there and then, that's the proof. And you see some of the players that have done horrendous things in their career who are now on prime TV and in major media roles, you know, with no, people just act like nothing happened. Yeah, people are very quick to forget past misdemeanors, aren't they, as long as they were good at their given sport? I mean, the the, the, the example that I point out is uh, Wayne Carey, who's had numerous, uh, you know, everything from drugs to domestic or family violence things and um, been arrested by police several times and for, for violence. And, you know, there he was fronting the, the football uh, wearing a white ribbon, you know, He's sitting right in the middle of the panel. Yeah, and and the thing about sport that's important, even if you don't like sport, is 
in Australia, it is so much of our culture and it's so much of our power structure. So even if you're completely indifferent to sport, uh, you can't really escape it because the chairs and the uh, and the boards of these sporting clubs, especially in Victoria, are the captains of industries, they're the politicians, they're the powerful. And so if you're excluded from those areas, you really can't participate in a lot of Melbourne life. And it's not a long time ago that women, for example, were completely excluded. In 1985, women weren't allowed into the um, the MCG's long room where the members were. They weren't allowed in at all. Uh, and they only decided to uh, let the women in when uh, John Kane, the Premier at the time, said, if you want hundreds of millions of dollars to build your new southern stand, you've got to let women in. And they grudgingly decided that that was a price they were willing to pay. But that's not long ago, you know, that's that's in our generation. So, it, and, and same with Indigenous uh, Australia and a group, you know, huge group. So that's why sport is important, even if uh, it's important because people think it's important. Mm. And there's been, I mean, sport's played a really, um, I guess, significant role in some instances in um you know, re- reconciliation and encouraging, encouraging re- reconciliation with um, Aboriginal people in Australia. People like Michael Long and Nikki Winmar have been incredibly, um, you know, strong role models coming through the AFL and, and the AFL has um, become better at dealing with that. But then we have instances like the bullying of Adam Goods mm. a few years ago and a lot of vitriol all over social media against him. So are we making real progress in, in terms of our, our major sporting codes and the way that we interact with them? I think we're making superficial progress and we're making minor progress i mean sports sport does very well the the moment of uh you, you know kathy freeman winning gold and these things that seem like moments of reconciliation and look hopefully they are hopefully they do have an impression on young people especially who see it and think well this is great and it does change views but it's no faster than the rest of society and I think a lot of the things that you know getting beyond sport that's happening at the moment with you know you look at Trump in America and things happening here is uh, especially with you know the Harvey Weinstein stuff it's the the pretense of people this going underground racism sexism and being seen as a it's been sorted because we've allowed some indigenous players to play mm. the goods thing shows to me that that's not real change it's just the superficial thing and that's i think very much the case there was a sense at the commission level at the afl that goods bought a lot of it on himself by uh you know speaking up as australian of the year on indigenous <laughs> issues um doing that thing that a lot of people hate indigenous people do which is point out the bleeding obvious (laughs) you know but that's the vitriol they get if they do it so i don't know if we are coming much further we've come further on a few minor issues in sport like the racism on the field uh and in the crowd gets called out a little bit more if you you know there are punishments there are and so that pushes some of it underground but is it actually opening up the channels to participation and changing community attitudes I don't necessarily think so. And I think the AFL and other sporting bodies have less power than we sometimes pretend they do to actually change it, you know, to think they're going to solve all these problems for us. Mm. Yeah, it's 10.30 and uh, Titus O'Reilly's with us and his book, A Thoughtful and uh, Unhelpful, A Thoroughly Unhelpful History of Australian Sport. I know, I was going to say it is thoughtful (laughs) and it is also helpful. Sorry, despite despite, despite your best efforts, it really is helpful. Um, But I I mean, reading about women's sport and when you were here and you used to do your your segment on the breakfasts, breakfasters uh, talking about sport you'd give 
updates on women's sport and this is something we're hearing a lot more and that feels like you know some progress and certainly we've got you know some professional women's athletes playing AFL W now and um, they're the games I'm going to see so there is spectators there and we're going to watch those games but how fast and how far do you think we're going to go in this space? Well I, I think it now is happening very quickly and I think that's a positive it definitely is you know Elise Perry scoring on the weekend was in all the papers and on the news and it was unfortunately not streamed on it wasn't shown on tv it was streamed live on the website of cricket australia but it was moments like that are increasingly happen but it's being actually driven by the fact that these sports have resisted women's uh sport this you know cricket and football and various others for a long time setting up leagues because they thought they wouldn't be popular and now suddenly they've actually been dragged to do it and suddenly it turns out it's both popular and potentially commercially going to be lucrative with sponsors. And so suddenly they're all behind it. So there's a little bit of, you know, I'm very happy it's happening, but could this have been happening 20, 30 years ago? You'd argue it potentially it could have easily been done. But uh, credit where it credits due, some like Gillan McLaughlin at the AFL actually has bought, he bought forward the launch of the AFL uh, w by and I think two years, so two three years he actually sped it up. So it is starting to happen, um, but we've got a long way to go. That you look at the dollars and they're nowhere near, you know, in comparison. So it's really important that the community though get behind it because that's what brings in the sponsors and brings in the money for the women athletes. So going to the AFLW and things like and watching it is really important. But it is nice that what is actually happening. I think is these AFL teams especially, their men and the women are now training together and occupying the same uh, workspace, the gyms, the, you know, and I think that's going to have a uh, great impact on this breaking down the idea that men and women are ultimately massively different when really I think that gets played up more than our similarities and so actually having workplaces that are fairly equal just as always shown in research to be better and I think it's going to break down the boys clubs because you're just going to have workplaces that are 50-50 now in the AFL and other sports. And that change has happened not just within sports but also in terms of, of media and the way that people consume media too. There was a sense I think previously that major networks and, and publications were kind of gatekeepers about who was qualified to talk about sport, mainly older white men past football players, even if they couldn't really string much of a sentence together. But yeah. now we've got people like yourself who write, you know, really funny and thoughtful sports pieces and, and through your podcast, obviously, as well, and also like the Outer Sanctum, which has really taken off. So it feels like there's more ability for people to circulate these this kind of commentary around sport that wasn't so much available before. Yeah, I mean... That, that is, I wouldn't have a career without social media. So it's this thing that now you don't have to go and work for another company for years as a cadet and hope to one day the editor likes you and gives you a column or an on-air role. And the same with community radio has been similar in that space too. So it is a chance to get these different voices and then it turns out some are actually quite popular, uh, which shows what these gatekeepers are actually terrible tastemakers often. <laughs> but we're still a long way to go. You watch Channel mm. 7 or the Channel 9 cricket team and they still really don't have any women of note on board they have a few now on channel seven but the channel nine cricket team you know they're slowly being dragged into the early 80s i would argue that's about where they're up to so it's still way and look i don't know as a as a middle-aged white male maybe this is not working for me maybe i should have tried to keep the status quo in place but 
it, a lot of it was very boring and I think people are now able to vote with their feet by going to different streams or different ways of watching or consuming this stuff. There's a whole world for what people are actually into now. Mm. And what do you think good sports writing brings us? Because uh, a friend of mine argued for years that, you know, if you want to really find out what's happening in a country, read the sports columns, read read what's happening in sport. And he kind of won me over. I don't quite turn to the back page straight away, but um, when it's on the front page, it's often quite interesting and, in, you know, insightful, maybe a scandal as well. But, I mean, what do you think it brings us? Well, I see sport as similar in many ways, which is why I don't understand often when people don't like both, which I see art and sport. They're both just types of culture to me, you know, even though, especially when so much of sport these days is watching sport, not even playing it. It's not. It's gone from a hobby or an activity or a physical activity or something you consume. And so both of those things, art and sport, they trigger this massively emotional, you know, emotional thing, and it's important because really we all care about it, not for any other reason in a way, like you're getting so upset or so happy about a painting or a, a, your team winning is in many ways insanely bizarre that you care that much. I mean, the idea that I get upset that a bunch of 20-year-old guys couldn't kick a ball around an oval better than another bunch of 20 year old guys is weird like it's very <laughs> odd i shouldn't you know i i've got enough insight into myself to know i'm an odd person for thinking it because we all care so sports writing just brings through this passion this interest and and as i've said in australia the history of australian culture for better or worse is sport so often the defining moments you know that really have galvanized the country body line even far lap during the depression uh, the america's cup these pivotal moments uh you know in australia we, we haven't had the civil wars we haven't had you know the revolutions that other countries have had it's it's been in some ways you know in the you know since uh the, the british showed up it's been a, a fairly standard you know backwater in some ways and so these are the moments that have that people unite around and pull together around. Mm, I love a line towards the end of your book where um, you say sport is important, gloriously stupid but important. And it, it is really stupid, isn't it? And I kind of went through a time. Yeah, I, I, think, I think in my kind of early 20s where I went off, I went a bit off football and stuff. We thought I was too cool for it and was into other things like music and travelling and stuff. And then came back in a massive big way to just being obsessed by it again. But coming off um, the grand final this year with Richmond winning, I was kind of chatting to Richmond fans saying well what what happens now like you're not supposed to be successful and there's this like great maybe, maybe of, melbourne will win next maybe that's what yeah, happens. I, well, <laughs> but again it doesn't sit right with melbourne so like what what happens when your team wins and you have this huge eruption of um excitement and and kind of resolution to your years of of um heartbreak yeah and then what what about next year i mean well i don't really know being a month supporter 964 was our last premiership so uh, you know it's impossible for me to imagine what that moment would be actually <laughs> like but yeah i think People, do, I've heard people, you know, they get less or more interested after winning, like with those long droughts. I mean, Hawthorne supporters consider six months a long time to go <laughs> without a premiership, so they're in a different thing. So, yeah, but it, it is gloriously stupid in many ways. It, you know, the, there's a lot of things in life where I've heard people criticise art in the same way, like, well, what's the point of it, or what's the point of that? And you go, well, the point is, it's exam, it's a part of our existence, and we, and we as a species which is a group community species as much as we like to pretend to be individuals uh 
because we all care about certain things, we all care about those things. So that's why that's important. And uh, that's why I think sport and art and these other things that really when you boil them down, what is the point? You know, the point is that it connects us and that's what sports sport does in in australia especially and in victoria it really is the state religion afl mm. you know it is impossible to you can hate afl and it still defines you in ways so it's a very strange place we live in <laughs> and you were recently at the sports writing festival and uh great lineup for that festival and talking about uniting i mean was there a feeling of collegiality in in a sports writing festival yeah there is i mean francis leach had pulled that together it's i think it's the third year and it was in sydney as well this year and they had a, a whole range of writers um tony wilson was there from uh who's you know been a, a triple r before, um and uh, alicia sometimes was there and a whole range of people who have made sporting careers and it was just a, a great chance to meet all the different people and even the the audience was very much people who were looking to either love sports writing or want to get into sports writing so it was a great way and to talk about the issues like the fact that the old days of broadcasting have changed and all these you know you can start today and write a blog or start a twitter account and you know i spoke a lot about that how you can start and you don't know where it will end up um i was my advice to people on writing is if you want to start a blog don't wait till it's perfect or you've figured out what the color scheme of your website is and everything just start because your first few will be awful but the other benefit is no one will read them (laughs) so you might as well just get started and by doing um and you know 10 years ago 15 years ago building a career just purely on writing online you know was impossible so people now have this enormous opportunity on any topic they want to start those things and then do things like community radio and do these other things and can just suddenly build a whole career out of something that was not there 10, 15 years ago, which I found amazing. So there was a lot of chat about those sort of things. Do you remember your first blogs? Yeah, I wrote... I wrote. Uh, so I started with no idea of what I was trying to do. It wasn't an attempt to be a satirist or even just about sport. I just wanted a creative outlet. And I wrote a couple of football pieces but they were deadly serious and they were the worst sin of writing and <laughs> that they were boring and no one read them not even my parents read them like it was that level of interest and it was only the first one i ever wrote that actually got any reaction at all small but a reaction was i wrote a piece called the constant fear of raising a carlton supporter and it was all about how you have to indoctrinate your kids into your sporting team from a young age and and that actually did okay and i sort of started to learn all right if i put a bit of humor in it you know and i didn't know if i was any good at humor and, and some would argue i'm not but you know that was sort of the the thing and then it just started to evolve but it took me uh looking for the sports writer francis asked me to go and find look back through my old stuff and it took me a year to just get it my head around twitter mm. and then it took me like till year two three where i was actually consistent it was very patchy some would say still patchy but it was very <laughs> patchy and then you know you start to find your voice and what works for you and you start to get better so it's just doing mm. that gets you there well, now you've reached maybe the pinnacle with a thoroughly unhelp- unhelpful history of Australian sport. What's what's next for you? Retirement or you yeah, that's going? right. It's climbing the mountain. And, <laughs> no, I've got another book that will come out next year, so I'm currently in the start of that. So writing 
that and so that's going to take up a lot and look doing radio doing um bit of tv and things like that so doing i did a stand-up tour about a month ago so um i'll be doing the comedy festival uh, next year so doing a lot of those performing and speaking and stuff which has been really fun to do and I, you know I never thought I didn't start this till I was about six years ago so I was about you know 34 33 and when I started and never done any performing of any sort so suddenly now doing stand-up tours is it's a bizarre <laughs> change you got, you got the hat prop You've that's got a, right. You've got a look that's going a, on. That's all I've learned. Just have a prop. Yeah, and people can see you coming. It's <laughs> yeah, all good. I should have got a big, a bigger hat, like a novelty <laughs> huge hat would have been. The... <laughs> now nah, then you'd just look like you should be in Parliament. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in, Titus. It's great to see you. Great to have you back at Triple R. Good luck with the book and the tour. And uh, you can catch Titus, of course, long form, short form, any form broadcaster. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll have you back on Triple R again really soon. Any time, great to be back. Great to have Sally Riffin with us. Good morning, Sally. Good morning. Always lovely to be here. And looking so good. You've knocked off another book. Yeah. Ready. I know. Feeling yeah. relaxed look, for look about in your, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> look in your stores by Christmas, I hope, for the next um, Polly and Buster oh book. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Don't you get it? Isn't next it going to come back quick? Next year. Next year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we have to wait. <laughs> We have to wait that long. We should oh. have discussed that before. I'm actually really <laughs> disappointed about that because it's just so beautiful what I've seen of it so oh, far. Anyway, congratulations. You. Oh, well, you. you have to wait. Yeah. You have to think of something else for the kids now. <laughs> for the <laughs> anyway, really good to see you. Thanks. And um, today, Nova Wickman is with us uh, as well. And Nova, you've just done a whole lot of subversive radio <laughs> programs on Triple R. I have, yeah. And you were nice to you, be back. Yeah, it's been this amazing journey through Melbourne and uh, subversive Melbourne, as you called that yeah. that um, series you co-hosted. And who knew that behind the scenes you were releasing a book at the same time? <laughs> on the same day, actually. Were on the you? day of the launch, I did the radio show. We finished at two and then I had to hoon to the bookshop by three crazy. And The Secrets We Share is the book you've put out. Uh, it's the second in your series. The first one's The Secrets We Keep and uh, congrats for getting that one out. And uh, and they're going to be number three as well. Oh, this kind of keep going maybe. Or? I have to check with the publisher. Let's see how well this one sells. But yeah, it feels like a trilogy would be a nice, you know, it'd wrap it up nicely, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do a synopsis, Sally? Oh, sure. Yeah. Congrats for making me cry too. Yeah, thanks. For oh, that, that's okay. Heather. No yeah. worries. Pleasure. <laughs> so I read the first one. That came out last year, didn't it? Yeah. And we go into the world of Clem. Um, what's her last name, sorry? Timmons. Timmons, that's right. And she's in grade six. Yep. And something has gone on in her family that you don't find out until the end of the book, which I won't give away. But in the second one, we really go even deeper into her world. And I found really, I really was inhabiting her body. In fact, I texted Nova to say, I've just finished reading your book. And I was transported back to a 12-year-old reading Judy Bloom. I don't know if you guys used to read Judy <laughs> Bloom, but it's that kind of sense of here is someone who understands what it's like to be 12. And so I was really moved. And she's she's angry and she's upset with the world but she has these beautiful parents that just keep her in check. Yeah, she does. Is that a good summary? It's a, that's a great summary. You can write my synopses from now on if that's okay. <laughs> so, yes, please, book three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, book three. Mm. How, how do you get into the, the mind of a, a 12-year-old? 12-year-old. And, and pre- yeah, present the perspective, their perspective. Um, I think it's a combination of things. So this character's ageing with my daughter, which I think my daughter loved at the beginning and now really hates and kind of resents <laughs> me for. Um, so this one is about her starting high school, which my daughter started this year. So when I was writing it, I was really tapping into what she was feeling. Um, and also I just remember, like, that is such a huge, that's a massive part of mm. my memory, I think, mm. being 12. 
It's a key to it, I think, isn't it? Writing well yeah. for children is not because I often teach writing for children. So I think you do as well. Yeah. Um, and often they'll ask, you know, do you need to have children to be able to write well for them? And I think it's more an access to your child self. Yeah, really, totally. Isn't it? And some of the, be- I mean, Kate DiCamillo doesn't have kids. There's some of the best children's writers in the world don't have children. So mm. well, I couldn't stand the little blood. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's why. He, yeah. That's why he stuck them to trees. Yeah. I think you can like tell that, that actually. Yeah. I think his books are quite anti-children in many ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think that's why. I, well, I as a kid. As an adult, really do enjoy them. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, for all their their their, yes. their flaws, I suppose in some ways, but yeah. in others, I just go, oh, this is so good. Yeah, yeah it's wicked. great, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on at that age, though, isn't there? I yeah. mean, there's of course changing schools and 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 making and meeting a whole new group of friends, yeah. and a lot of changes in your body happening at that time yeah. as well. There's, there's a lot happening. And I think um, what I've been really interested in watching my daughter and her friends, and also I guess exploring in the book, is that trying to work out who you are. And I think that's like you, you, just pre the cusp of being sort of 13, 14. I think 12 is a massive point in your life, mm. and I think we often think it's older, and it's actually not. I don't think so. And it's yeah. a beautiful age to write for because we were saying there's a lot covered in young adult novel that goes into quite a gritty domain and talks a lot about angry kids and, and really explores that idea of a character pushing the boundaries. But middle grade, there's a kind of a feeling that people play a little bit safe. And yeah. I feel like that's one of the things you did really beautifully, explore what it's like to be angry with the world. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, oh, wow, angry. I mean, yeah, my, yeah, I've seen a lot of that, you know, just that really just frightened of where they're going, of starting a high school, of not fitting in, of not knowing how to dress, of all of that stuff. And I think that does raise real anger issues. And that's and that's if everything in your world at home is going well. Mm. And if all of that's going badly as well, then I think the anger's even kind of ramped up even more. So I think I'm definitely really interested in writing angry girls. Mm. And I don't think we let girls be angry. And I think that ha- we have to let them be angry. And I um, so I've had a lot of kids respond to the fact that she is really pissed off in these <laughs> books and, lo- and love that. I think it gives them license to go, I'm feeling angry about this stuff. Mm. So, yeah. And sometimes even confusion can be felt as anger yeah. too, can't it? Because it's exactly like you say, there's so much change and so much yeah. going on and they're being a little bit of control of their lives but not quite enough. Yes. There's still yeah. adults coming down on them, so pushing against that. Yeah. And why... You've written also for young adults. Is there something about this age in particular that appeals to you, or you kind of can cross into both? Uh, I don't think I'll ever write for young adults again. I think I'm. I think I'm done. <laughs> I think I'm done with that. You heard that first um, yeah, your, your daughter is celebrating at home right She's now. Yeah. So <laughs> delighted. She said to me when she started high school, "Don't you ever come in and do a school visit. That is not okay. It was fine at primary school. It is not okay at high school." I said, "Okay, fine." Um, yeah, no. I actually really. This is my. This is my chosen age Mm. I think I love it it's just a great especially yeah I just think I think you can do so much and I don't think that I don't think we're expected to be writing for adults I think so many young adult writers now are knowing that both mostly their books are being read by adults Mm. that middle grade kids read middle grade fiction adults are not going to pick this up by choice like they're just not so you know you're writing for your genuine genuine audience I think mm. and I love that like I think that's and you, you would find that like yeah it's just, definitely you have someone sometimes you have someone in mind yeah. or you certainly have a, a type of, of yeah. reader in mind definitely yeah yeah, and I, I think, um, I mean, when you find, you're, you've found your sort of age group, yeah. well, I suppose, is it an age group or is it, it's a sort of a state of, I think it's, an, I think it is a kind of age. I think it's, because actually, um, it's quite broad. I think it is kind of eight to 12, eight to 13. Like, I think it can go younger than you expect and older than you expect. Um, 
And I think once, yeah, once you sort of find it and the publisher that I published with said that to me at the beginning, you have to work out what your, what your age is. And at the moment you think you're writing young adult. I don't think you're a young adult writer. And she was right all those years ago. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm sort of not as much as I like writing for teenagers because it's cooler <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice working with teenagers. It's just really nice having kids read your book that you've written it for. I think there's something really special about that. Hmm. I was reading that, that having kids kind of changed your approach to writing or at least made yeah. you more interested again in, in revisiting kids' books and, yep. and writing kids' books. Yeah. And it, um, I think too, because it, because I was parenting so much and I had such short periods of time, you can, you can write, I don't know, I could sort of, I could approach a kid's book in a way that I probably couldn't have been approaching an adult novel. Mm. I was, originally did want to write adult novels, um, wrote two unsuccessful adult novels that are still in my drawer, um, and lots of adult short fiction, but, I, it just opened it up that world again that I think I'd locked down in my own head about what it was to be that age mm. and suddenly I was like oh that I'd loved being that age you know I loved what all of that meant and I found my old diary where I <laughs> expressed a fondness for Tom Selleck which was so sad <laughs> <laughs> which I won't write about I actually before. found an old diary of mine recently and I'd stapled the pages together <gasps> did you un did you no, take I staples? didn't I just looked at it and went I remember doing that so you I don't know to, what's in you there. You have to. It's the sealed section. No, though. you have to find it. But it's fascinating, though, that you... that I mean, I did that. I don't know what, what, what motivated me yeah. to stay, but it's because I would have known if my brothers found exactly. it. Exactly. Mm. They would have teased you, but they would have taken the staples off, wouldn't they? My brothers would never have bothered. Really? They didn't care that much. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's great. And I think you think when you're that old that, that everything you're going through is massive. Yeah. Totally. Mm. And when you look back on it, you think, oh, gosh, you know, it was just your first pimple or your first period yeah. or your first boyfriend or something. But at the time... It is the first. That's yeah. why it is so massive. Yeah. So the idea of somebody extracting that from your thing, yeah. which is why I think the reading of it is so powerful because it's a way of projecting all those firsts yeah. into what you're reading yeah. as well so you can live live it vicariously without it actually being your own you. diary. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> I think my mum bought me a diary actually and she said, write it down because it's always smaller. If you've written it down, it always seems smaller than the bigness of it when you're dealing with it. And it's so true, I think. Mm. And I think we, pro I mean, even as adult writers, or adults writing children's books i'm still processing all sorts of stuff writing these books and even if it's not the actual act of being 12 it's what it is to be that parent or it's mm. what it is to feel that feeling or i'm still going through the kind of processing of those things i think mm. yeah i was actually going to ask about writing the parent yeah. uh, characters i mean is that were you reflecting very much on yourself or the parenting you had or what you observe around yeah. you i think um the father in these books so in the first book the mother is um blamed by clem for a lot so she's very angry with her um and in in both books, the father is this beautiful, just perfect father. And I think I keep writing, like I love my dad very much, but I keep writing the father that, oh, you know, if only I'd had the fairytale <laughs> picture of a father. And I think I do just have, I'm drawn to that idea of this father who just understands everything, buys you the perfect present, you know, gives you money for things, like just gets you. He's like so, the Atticus Finch of Contemporary He is history. totally, he's totally, he's, he's, um, he's Anna Green Gables, you know, he's, he's Matthew. Yeah. He's that character over and over he's again. Wise, he's patient. Yeah. And he just gets, he gets his angry daughter and he lets her be angry. Yeah. So it's like, oh, how ridiculous. But that's, it's that character. <laughs> and I'm not often, I, I, I never write a good mother. 
I always write these flawed, really <laughs> screwed up mothers. My mum wasn't, but maybe I, like, I'm doing some sort of processing of my own it's parenting. It's though, isn't it? Maybe. We're really writing our yeah. fears. So we're, we're not great mothers. Yeah. yeah. And we can't write us, we can't write great mothers because we don't want to sort of say that's who we are, I mm. think. So, yeah. I don't know. And yeah. is it okay to, I mean, I haven't checked in with you before, but the, the stories are essentially about one of the parents suffering from mental, mental health issues. Yep. Yeah. And so, um, how do you write about those kind of difficult topics for children with sensitivity? Because I know sometimes writers for children, when they're first starting out, they'll come with an agenda, you know, I want to write a book that will help children with anxiety or I want to write a book yeah. that will help them with bullying or something. So how do you do it so it feels authentic and not heavy-handed? Um, with the, So with the first one, I was writing it for, so The Secrets We Keep, um, someone close to us had had a breakdown and my daughter wasn't processing it very well. So I was trying to find a way for her to be able to talk about it. So I would go to work and write and I'd come home and she'd read it and she'd say, no, that's not how she's feeling, she's feeling this. And she would place the right emotion on the character. And quite often it was rage or it was, you know, fury or whatever the feelings were she was having. So she sort of, in many ways, plotted the emotional terrain of Clem. Um, and I think that really helped and I wrote it really quickly like in four weeks which I don't normally do but that book just poured out because it was just a reaction to what was going on in our lives and I think with the next one um I just Clem was already that person so she could just be she had license to be angry and I I I kept not trying to think of a parent going you can't be that but just letting her be whatever she was I guess and she is really cross and yeah Mm. What an extraordinary collaboration. It mm. was pretty good, except she wants, she wants money. <laughs> yes, money. You look after <laughs> Exactly, that's what I say. But every, every time, like, you know, it might get nominated for an award and she'll go, if it wins, I want 10%. Like, yeah, well, it hasn't won so far, so you're fine. But she's desperately sure that she is owed. It's hilarious. She, yeah, wow. Yeah. It's a it's business person in the making, not a writer. Uh, no, no, totally. <laughs> hopefully not a writer. She could be your yeah. manager yeah. or agent. Yeah, she like totally could be. Yeah. It's interesting because many Many other authors we've had on the show haven't really said that they share much of their stories with kids, whether their own kids or other kids, because yep. they're not really looking for that immediate response. They want to kind of be in the zone and put it down on paper first. But it seems like you work in, in a bit of a different way with your daughter. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, actually, with all of my books, I always get early readers in to read sections. So it might not be her. I wrote a, a book last year that was two young adult male characters and I'd never written male protagonists before and I had no idea what teenage boys were like. So I'd send bits to my friend's sons and they'd go, nah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about that. We just go and hang out. So I had to go to the skate parks and kind of like, you know, in disguise. middle-aged woman going, oh, what, what's the language? <laughs> and so I will always, Secrets We Share was read by several young, yeah, I mm. always get... Um, Often not necessarily when I'm writing the first draft, but definitely at the end of the first draft because it's just, they're just honest. They're mm. really honest and they, they won't tell you they like something if it's crap and they will call you out on things that just aren't right. And that's invaluable, I think. Mm. Great. So yeah. do you have to translate what they say or oh, they're able to articulate? No, they, well they're really articulate. Yeah. And I'm writing a middle grade book at the moment with a friend, uh, my daughter's best friend who's diabetic and she's basically just sits there with me going, nah, nah that's not right, that's not right, the character wouldn't... Like, she's so... Mm. It's great because it's giving me... I can write about it without feeling like I'm an imposter, you know, and she's just giving me all this kind of voice and material for a 12-year-old diabetic, and it's fantastic. Well, it's it's just authentic authenticity. So, yeah, it is. <laughs> and it also gives them licence, and it means that you've got the real experience of what it is to be a 12-year-old now, because obviously my experience is very different. Um, yeah, so I love having kids 
input, actually. Mm-hmm. And often when I go and talk to them, they'll go, can you put a character in called Mackenzie? And you go, sure. And so <laughs> <laughs> next time there'll be some. So I try. I try and make it slightly collaborative. Keeping your weirdly. fans happy. <laughs> Yeah, fa- fan, fan, Dylan. Yeah, we're hearing about the amazing collaborations of Nova Wheatman and Sally Riffin is with us and we're in the reading room on the grapevine and uh, really discussing the latest book out from Nova called The Secrets We Share. But it's not the only book you've, um, or the series that you've written. You've written many other things. <laughs> I've written As, for you. I know. <laughs> and, Years um, ago. and yeah, I mean, you, you really are quite an adaptable writer, aren't you? I mean, that's something that yeah, I get. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think it's a, you know, it comes from having to earn a living. Like, and we, I really do because my partner's a playwright, so we both have to be pretty adaptable. Um, there's no income otherwise. So I've written, yeah, I'll just, ex, you know, exploit a story for whatever it's worth in whatever form I can get it sold, I think. Um, which is good. You know, I like, I like, uh, I like being able to write nonfiction and I like being able to write television. I like being able to write all of it, really, and not have not having to sort of confine myself to one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to ask what it was like writing for Neighbours. Oh, do you? <laughs> really? For sure. Uh, <laughs> I was so bad at it that after about 18 months, I think they sacked me. So uh, it, it's Probably means you were really good at it. I think yeah, I, was, I think it's really hard. I actually think mm. it's one of those underestimated. It's like people think writing a kids book is easy mm. or a picture book is easy. Like that things like that are really difficult and I think neighbors is the same. I think if you're good at it it's an absolute skill and I wasn't very good at it. I'm not very good at writing television. I keep getting these jobs but I I think it's just a matter you're of not time. Selling <laughs> yourself I know I'm not that. I'm not selling myself but I'm really, you know, it's not my skill. That's all right. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but is there overlap though? Because obviously I assume that some of the skills that you picked up on writing for television, yeah. being able to meet a deadline, being able to do a character yeah. arc, yeah. Uh, those kind of things. Did they come in handy when you started? Because writing yeah. novels is more recent for you, isn't it? You've worked yeah. in a lot of other areas, yeah. first of all. Um, I think that the real skill is... Uh, having your ego stripped and destroyed really early on in television and so I'm very up for being edited and I don't have I'm just not precious so I'm I'm fine about people criticizing my work and that's okay um and I think that is really handy actually uh and I am good with deadlines and I can work on multiple projects at the same time and I think that's a television skill and I think dialogue is probably one thing that um and yeah maybe plotting I don't don't know it's interesting to kind of try and work it out Mm. um yeah, maybe. Maybe they are adaptable more than I think they are. Mm. And what about characters? Do you find writing characters in novels quite different? Oh, because you get so to go lovely. into their yeah. heads. Yeah. yeah, because you're actually forming something that's real and it's human and it's kind of 3D and, you know, layered instead of just a sketchy... Mm. I mean, I have written short film that is... Um, that is much more layered and much more nuanced and for adults and it's obviously a, a different kind of experience. But it's that thing with writing a script where you know no one's ever going to read it so no one cares if the sentence is beautiful and that gets really sad yeah. <laughs> after a while. You want to write something that someone actually wants to sit down with and read, you know, you know, in their chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I was, I mean, earlier you said about writing about angry young girls yeah. or characters uh, I mean it, in opposed to what because I suppose we're in that real you know you, now you go into clothing stores and it's girls clothes and boys yeah. clothes and yeah. this real you know I know a lot of people are really pushing back on that that yeah. we are, are setting up these kind of this is a girl way of acting and a boy way of acting and I suppose books like this can help push back on that but when you talk about the license to be angry what why don't we give girls that license do you think what is it about 
ask because it's a societal thing. It isn't is. It? You can't yeah. be an angry yeah. young girl. It's like, oh yeah. god, she's bossy or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I think you can't be an angry woman. I mean, I think you get labelled all sorts of, you know, whether it's hashtag nasty women. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I think there's. I think there's so. I think it's we we allow, you know, and you see it particularly. I think you see it when kids are playing sport that you know men men or boys are allowed to sort of behave in a certain way and girls are expected to behave in a very different way and i think maybe we don't let any children be angry in the way that they actually want to be maybe it isn't that gendered but i do think there is an expectation that girls do have to kind of yeah behave in a certain way um my daughter gets picked on for having short hair you know still living in in a in a north like it's you know there are still so many labels and expectations on kids growing up that we think we're breaking down we are breaking them down but they're still there and i think allowing kids to be angry whatever gender and to feel emotion and to actually have a space to express it and to not just to try and you know process it and work through it and pack it away is really important Mm. so yeah i mean your billy characters does does that and your poly character does that sally yeah you've been you've been kind of it's because i had to remain so nice (laughs) (laughs) children's author imagine an angry children's author it'd be great (laughs) i love it Come on. Just provoke me then, won't you? I will, I will. When I see you at a school. <laughs> so you do visit schools. That's a good, good thing. <laughs> yeah, I do visit it. schools. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I think you've told me that the kids really love doing is you've also written a Choose Your Own Adventure yeah. series. So what, what kind of workshops do you do with kids along those uh, lines? So I get them to... And speaking of angry, it's great <laughs> because you go into, like, girls' schools particularly, secondary schools, and you go, we can do a Choose Your Own story and we'll do it on the board and they'll have to yell out, so choices, basically, and the characters will have to make all sorts of choices and, you know, you'll go along all the different pathways. And they are, without a doubt violent horror <laughs> like and you'll go into a catholic school and the poor teacher will be sitting there going you can't have that that's not an option and it's just like yeah it is we're just going to let them do whatever they want and it's about giving them license to be vile and to really just go to dark dark places yeah. i reckon and teenage again they don't get the chance to be and because it's all of us working together they feel much less burdened by having to sit there and do their own work but they can kind of yell out really dark and horrible and they want to just want to kill off characters all the way through they just keep killing people it's great <laughs> um so yeah that's really fun i remember <laughs> a, a similar thing happening um i've just it just come back to me after what 23 years or something <laughs> like that but um a, a teacher at, at primary school suggesting a storyline as an idea of what we might want to write for a creative writing project and it was like a murder mystery or something yep. but every single person wrote this really macabre yeah. messed up story totally. and the parents going what the hell did yeah. you tell them to do but mm. it was we had a license to, yes. to go nuts yes. and have fun with it and and write some really unsavory things down so it's about having that kind of permission i think it is and i think um i read the I read the book that I wrote when I was 12 to kids when I go and do school visits and it's the most vile book and it's basically my way of killing off every kid in the class that I hated and keeping the five that I didn't <laughs> and turning them all into jelly and the horrible kid then goes and eats them all when they're all jelly. So it's just, just really dark and macabre <laughs> and you read it to kids and you can just see them going, oh. But it's like, of course, of course, when we're 12, we're writing in order to control our world and most of that is to kill off or get rid of the people we hate because mm. they're making our lives unpalatable mm. and writing is a great way, I think, for us to control that space and letting them write whatever. I think it's really important for kids to better write whatever 
whatever they want. Yeah, mm. I agree. I mean, I, I, I picked my, my kids were one of the few that went to school on that fake long weekend recently. Yeah. I picked them up and I'm like, gee, you're happy today. Oh, yeah. There's only eight of us in the class. No one else is all the annoying people. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so happy. They just had such an enriching yeah. day. Yeah. But it was, um, I mean, it was a one-off and they do like their classmate anyway. I shouldn't <laughs> talk about their experiences on there. But it's just that, that sense that of that being able to control their space. Yeah. It was yeah. quite, it was like being in a country school or something. It yeah. was quite extraordinary yeah. and interesting to see the response. And I also because you write about killing people doesn't mean you're actually going to go out and no, do it. No, of course <laughs> you're going to do it. A lot of adults and, um, really freak out about that. I yeah. know a lot, with a lot of the Andy Griffith stories, he gets very criticised. He says, I don't think if I write about kids who are going to throw their mums in front of buses that they're actually going to no. do it. And I have a friend whose husband writes horror movies in Hollywood, like B-grade, and he says the healthiest people are the ones who get it down of on course. paper. It's not the ones who internalise <laughs> yeah, those stories. And that's why... I think so many kids are turning to graphic novels or, mm. cartoon, or you know, comics because there is so much sort of, um, yeah, just like that kind of, you can play out all those kind of fantastical options. We all think it. Just of play course it we do. It's, do it it's healthy. I think <laughs> it's very healthy. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for coming uh, in, Nova. It's really right. great to um, hear what you're up to when you're not doing stuff on Triple R. <laughs> uh, and you can actually listen back on Nova's uh, and um, where she co-hosted Subversive Melbourne as well. She had five uh, amazing conversations on a Sunday afternoon one o'clock is it yeah, one, one to two, two. Yeah. yeah really worth uh, tapping back into uh, but you can catch her latest book in the latest book um, your bookstores The Secrets We Keep Nova Wheatman and it's part of a series the first one's The Secrets We Share uh, good luck fingers crossed we get some Thank more <laughs> and uh, and we'll catch you again in a month or just under Should a month's time it? yeah on the 4th of December Sally will be our last show for <gasps> the year show. so Christmas special <laughs> with Sally Rippon coming up uh, early next month thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.